0: the 2018 sixth annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, From mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative, evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, December seventh, two 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this lecture podcast, Dr. Jean Zanka presents Building Positive Working Relationships Between People with SCI and Caregivers. Dr. Zanka is a Senior Research Scientist for Spinal cord Injury Research at Kessler Foundation. For more information about Dr. Zanka, click on her bio link within the description of this podcast. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.
1: So our next speaker is Jean Zanka. So Dr. Zanka is a senior research scientist for spinal cord injury research at the Kessler Foundation here at West Orange. Her talk will be on building positive working relationships between people with SCI and caregivers. As you heard, my name is Jean Zanka. I'm a senior research scientist at Kessler Foundation. I'm a physical therapist by background and a full-time researcher at present, and I'm so grateful this morning to have the opportunity to talk to you about building positive working relationships between people with spinal cord injury and their caregivers. Now, the larger project that this work is based in has many contributors that I want to acknowledge at the outset. And these include Dr. John Morris at Shepherd Center, Dr. Carol Gibson Gill at the VA New Jersey Healthcare System in East Orange, Marcel Dykers, who is affiliated with Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Wayne State University. As well as a number of members of the research and clinical teams at these centers that served roles as research assistants and coordinators and assisted with recruitment and data collection in a lot of different ways. These include Elizabeth Gonzalez and Marina Moldavsky at Shepherd Center, Ashley Quinn here at Kessler, and Tamika McMillian and Joyce Williams at the East Orange VA. I'm also very grateful for the support of many clinical leaders who helped us recruit participants, both clinicians and people with SCI and caregivers for this project, as well as our research participants, which included (coughs) clinicians, people with SCI, and caregivers, both paid and unpaid. The project was funded by the Department of Defense through its spinal cord injury research program. And I'm hopeful that by the end of this talk, you'll feel able to describe some suggestions for fostering positive working relationships between people with SCI and their caregivers, and discuss some ways in which the suggestions offered by participants might be acted upon in our services and programs. So before I talk about suggestions related to those relationships, I want to talk about personal care assistance, the the help that caregivers are providing. So when I refer to this, I'm talking about help from another person that's needed to accomplish daily tasks, usually related to health, hygiene, and functioning. And I'm using the term functioning in a very broad sense, everything from getting from point A to point B, from your bed to your wheelchair, to going out and going to work or participating in family or recreational activities. Now, there are many terms that can be used for caregivers and those who provide this assistance, including caregiver, attendant, personal care assistant, carer, titles that might pertain to their level of training. There are many different terms used in different contexts. I'm going to use the term caregiver in a very broad sense today, and many of these terms interchangeably, but I thought it's important to mention that. Now, there have been tremendous advances in technology over the years that enable people with spinal cord injury to do many things without the help of another person that weren't previously possible including such things as driving a car, propelling a wheelchair, or controlling a computer system. But when it comes to the basics of everyday life, the things we all did before we came here this morning, getting up, brushing our teeth, getting clean, getting ourselves dressed, for the most part, those things still require the help of another person's hands if you have very significant difficulty in moving because of a spinal cord injury. Now, people with spinal cord injury often use personal care assistance and spend a lot of time with these caregivers. There have been a number of survey studies that basically show that about half to slightly more than half of people with SCI surveyed are using personal care assistance, whether paid, unpaid, or a combination of both. The average hours of care in several studies of people with tetraplegia have ranged from 7 to 19 hours a day. That depends very much on the characteristics of the particular population being studied. And the amount of disability one has is generally the most uh, important predictor of how many hours of care one will need. And this care can be provided by many different kinds of people. It may be provided by informal caregivers, such as family or friends, or by paid assistance, either working through a home health care agency or that are privately hired by the person with spinal cord injury. Now, having access to appropriate personal care assistance is important in very many ways. Now it's interesting that there's actually not that much research to show this connection, but clinically and anecdotally, We believe there is a strong connection between the ability to have the right kind of care and the ability to avoid many of the complications that layer disability and problems on top of the initial spinal cord injury, including pressure injuries, which can be affected by how smoothly one is transferred, how well your skin is cleaned and cared for, for example. Infections that are very much influenced by how bowels and bladder are emptied, whether caregivers are washing their hands consistently, whether something gets put down in a place that's not clean. Bowel impaction, being able to have a bowel program that's done well, even being able to eat an appropriate diet. Very often, that needs help from someone else to let that happen. And autonomic dysreflexia, that increase in blood pressure that can happen in people with SCI when there's some sort of noxious stimulus present. That can result from any of the above issues or other ones, something like an ingrown toenail or something else that's fairly simple but can cause major problems. So personal care assistance is critical in lots of different domains. To maximize function. Very often, if someone is set up appropriately, then they can use the remaining function they have and complete the rest of the task without someone's help, but they just need that boost at the beginning. To maintain health. To avoid all those complications that we were talking about earlier, and that list is just, just a few of them. To increase efficiency. Now, a lot of time can be spent training someone to be able to dress him or herself. And they might be able to do it, but it might take them three hours, and they might be exhausted at the end. They want to save that energy to be able to go to school and interact with their children and participate in social activities. So having personal care assistance is sometimes a way of conserving energy so you can do other things. Promoting dignity and autonomy and enabling self-expression. The theme of the overall event that we're part of talks about individualized rehabilitation. Well, there's nothing more individualized than how you go about your day, whether you choose to brush your teeth before you wash your face, what clothes you want to put on, how you want to look, how you want to present yourself to the world, the kinds of things you want to do. In many ways, having the right kind of personal care assistance lets you be the person you want to be and to interact with the world in the way you wish. So on the whole, having good and effective personal care assistance that's working well is critically important to facilitate participation in family activities, social activities, work, and other things of importance. And if we zoom out and think about it in terms of the model of the ICF, the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, you'll see that Environmental factors include things like having access to the right kinds of helpers to be able to help you do things. And having that has ripple effects on lots of other things. When it comes to body functions and structures, keeping that skin integrity as it should be. Activities, you might need help to get into that wheelchair, but once you're in that wheelchair, you are ready to go. And participation, having that help is necessary to be able to fulfill your family and work and other roles. So the suggestions that we're going to talk about today are derived from a larger study in which a series of focus groups were conducted to inform the development of an assessment tool designed to help clinicians evaluate the ability of people with tetraplegia to direct their care and the ability of caregivers to assist them. And this project was really designed to kind of fill a gap in outcomes measurement. Uh, For many years, the functional independence measure has been one of the major things we've looked at in rehab. And as you know, that measure is very focused on how much help a person needs and what kind of help. But there's a major gap in that if you consider the case of a person who has very significant motor impairments due to SCI, they are a total assistance transfer from the bed to the wheelchair, need complete help to do that. That person is going to score the lowest possible score on the FIM, whether they went from point A to point B like a bump on a log, or whether they directed every aspect of that transfer, telling someone where the chair needed to be positioned, and how to move the sliding board, and how to move their feet, and all these kinds of things. Now clinically, those two people have very different skill sets and are probably going to go do differently in the world. But the measures we had at the time didn't really let us capture that, nor did they capture whether a caregiver was doing a transfer beautifully or whether the transfer was done by a clinician. The score is always the same. So we felt this was a gap that needed to be filled. And in the context of these discussions that we had to try to inform the content of this assessment tool, very frequently discussed were interpersonal dynamics between people with spinal cord injury and their caregivers and how important it was to get those right. And so the analyses that I present here are going to be focused on the subset of themes from those discussions that are about fostering healthy relationships. Now, our focus groups were conducted with people with tetraplegia due to SCI. So we did focus on tetraplegia in this study because those individuals tend to have the greatest care needs. But many of the things discussed here have broad applicability. These were individuals who were injured for at least one year, though we had a much more experienced bunch, as we'll talk about later and they had a lot of experience directing their care. We also spoke with hired or family caregivers that had at least six months of experience providing assistance and clinicians who had experience providing training to people with tetraplegia and their families. The focus groups took place here at Kessler, as well as Shepherd Center in Atlanta and the East Orange VA. The discussion questions that guided those focus groups were developed with input from multiple investigators on the team, and the discussions were about two hours in length. The discussion topics included the process of learning to direct and provide care, the characteristics of good direction of care and caregiving, suggested topics for training, and other experiences related to direction of care and caregiving. Now, we didn't specifically ask in those discussions what suggestions you have for building those positive working relationships. But they emerged from other questions like, what are some skills a person with spinal cord injury needs to have to direct his or her care well? Or what are the characteristics of good caregivers? The discussions were recorded for later transcription, and notes and transcripts were reviewed by multiple members of the team. A list of primary themes from those discussions was developed by the lead investigator, which was me, and then reviewed by several co-investigators who provided input on whether there were ideas that were missing or needed to be refined in any way. And so that final list of themes was developed by consensus. And today, we're going to present those themes relevant to working relationships in the form of suggestions that we hope can be actionable. So briefly, I want to talk a little bit about the characteristics of the people that we listen to in these discussions. As far as our individuals with tetraplegia are concerned, we spoke to nine at Kessler, eight at Shepherd, and nine at the East Orange VA. And the main thing I want to point out is their years of living with SCI. So the median score, so that 50th percentile, was 16 years post-SCI at Kessler, 20 at Shepherd, and 21 at the East Orange VA. So this is a very experienced group. Uh, On the whole, their paid hours of care received, that median number of paid hours, was very similar for the groups, ranging from 35 to 37. But interestingly, the number of unpaid hours of care was almost twice as much, if you look at the median, for the VA group as it was for the two civilian groups. And we've not dug down into why that might be, but we thought that was an interesting observation to highlight. When it comes to caregivers, their years of experience providing care were also quite considerable. So their median years at Kessler and Shepard were 15 and four at the East Orange VA, though there's quite a big range there. So they're experienced caregivers in all of these facilities. And the hours of care per week they provided on the median ranged from 30 to 48 hours. So a lot of time, a lot of experience. At Kessler, one of our four was a hired caregiver, the rest were family caregivers. At Shepherd Center, almost three quarters were paid caregivers, and at the East Orange VA, everyone was a family caregiver. So we had some variation among the sites and the kinds of caregivers that participated. Concerning SCI clinicians at all three sites, we had, again, many years of rehab experience, the median being 12 at Kessler, 9 at Shepherd, and 10 at the East Orange VA with some very high ends to those ranges. And some of those people may be in this room and know who they are. All right, so now the suggestions for fostering positive working relationships. Now, there are. what I'm going to do is present the list of suggestions first, and then we're going to talk about what each one means and provide some quotes from our participants related to those. So the first is set expectations early. Explain not only what needs to be done, but why. Respect each other's expertise. Be flexible and open to new ways of doing things. Acknowledge when things don't feel right. Step back and reassess the big picture. Treat one another as you would like to be treated. And pick your battles. Okay. so setting expectations early. Being on the same page was something that our participants said was very important. And they felt it was very important to have discussions right at the beginning about what's expected from a caregiver, including what tasks are needed and when, what the schedule of care will be, including arrangements for breaks and having time off, how much notice might be needed for changes in schedule, ground rules about things like cell phone use, handling personal mail, reserving personal space, and who has the authority to direct a caregiver in the case of a hired caregiver, whether it's the person with SCI or whether other family members have some say in that as well. Now, for this suggestion and others, you may notice that a lot of these seem most relevant to paid caregivers. And that was sort of the dominant focus of what our participants volunteered. But there are many aspects that have broad applicability to different kinds of caregivers. Now, in terms of setting those expectations, it was felt to be important that both the caregiver and the person with SCI have some say in how that's done and to use some mechanisms for documenting those expectations in writing, whether that be a contract that lists the expectations and responsibilities, checklists, or other forms of documentation. It was thought to provide a way to remind everyone of what was discussed. People with SCI in particular reported it could make discussions less awkward later. If something's not being done that was previously agreed to, you could point to those written records and say, you know, we talked about doing this and I I see that's not happening. What can we do to make that better? And it can help coordinate communications when there are multiple caregivers involved. So one of our participants said, it's also key that you put it all out in front. You're clear about what is expected. It's a benefit for both the person who's going to be the caregiver and yourself to lay out exactly this is what I'm going to need, this is what you have to do, and be as detailed as possible so that there are no surprises when you're actually doing this. Another of our participants with tetraplegia reported on her feelings about privacy and expectations there. I'm someone who's intensely private. I want my caregiver to have a very clear understanding. I want you to open my mail. I might need you to pull it out and unfold it, but at that point, put it down and step away explaining not only what needs to be done, but why. Now, the needs and preferences of every one of us are unique. We all have a certain order in which we like to do things. We have certain places we'd like to keep things and reasons behind that. And that's true of people with SCI just like anyone else. So doing things in a very specific way is important for a few different reasons, for allowing their health and... A function to be maximized, but also to respect the autonomy of the person with spinal cord injury and our participants with spinal cord injury in particular Said that explaining why something needs to be in a certain way why they're asking for something in a certain way Is important to prevent perceptions of being picky or bossy and getting resistance to those kinds of requests It also gives value to the caregivers contribution when they do that thing exactly that way This is what it accomplishes for me And it increases the likelihood that things will be done in the way that the person with SCI wishes them to be done. One participant said, I explained to them, I want the coffee here. Not here, but here. Not because I'm a dictator, but why it needs to be here. Because I can reach it. I'm more independent. So explaining to them why you need certain things, when you need them, where you need them, and how you need them. Then they feel more like they're helping you, not that they're your servant. Respecting each other's expertise. So each member of the care team, and by that I mean the person with SCI who's directing his or her care and the caregiver, have things they bring to the table. So the person with SCI has experience living in his or her body. They know what they need. They know what kinds of things work best for them. They know what the signs are that something is wrong, especially if they've had a lot of experience living with spinal cord injury. Caregivers also have something to offer. They can often see or observe things that the person with SCI can't. So each person has something to contribute. And it was felt to be important to share what you observe and consider each other's perspectives when determining how to proceed to address a particular problem or challenge. One of our participants with tetraplegia said, I know different kinds of spasms, what's causing them. So knowing your body, I know I have different types of spasms. One might be from not taking my medication. Others might be from some kind of pain. A caregiver described an experience where uh, the person she was caring for had a medical complication, came home from the hospital, and then she caught an issue before it became a larger one. After the appendix ruptured, they let him out of the hospital after several weeks. He received an impaction, referring to a bowel impaction, and we knew right away because we can tell how much is normal for his bowel movements and things like that. Be flexible and open to new ways of doing things. Now, there's very often many ways to do things. There are very few things that have only one right way to do them. And each person, the person with SCI and the caregiver, may have developed certain tips and tricks over the years. And each person may also have different capabilities that affect how things are best done. If you have a caregiver who's very tall and large and can do certain things a certain way, that works well for them. But someone who's more petite might need to do something a little bit differently. And sometimes it takes trial and error on the part of the person with SCI and his or her caregiver to figure out what works best for their particular team. So it's important to listen to each other and consider each other's suggestions when you figure out how you want to proceed. One of our caregivers says, a lot of times when you're a caregiver, it's a lot of trial and error. And as long as the consumer you're working with isn't afraid to try things, well then he's got a good thing going there. Next, acknowledging when things don't feel right. Explaining how to do something is not easy. When you're the person with SCI and you have to explain how something can be done and you don't have the ability to gesture, which is often the case, you have to rely on your words and sometimes find lots of different ways of saying something. Different people also learn different ways. Some people work well listening to the words. Other people need pictures or other forms of direction. And everyone has misunderstandings sometimes. This is part of life. So it's important to watch for signs of uncertainty or frustration, which could mean that something's not being communicated well, and to acknowledge it when you see that. So if you are someone who's directing your care and you give a direction to your caregiver to do something, and you see that they're kind of hesitating and furrowing their brow and look a little puzzled, that would be a good time to stop and say, did that make sense? Should I explain that differently? Do you have a question? Similarly, if you're the person who's providing assistance and you start to do something and you see the person you're helping grimacing or looking displeased in some way, that's probably a good sign that you should pause and ask, am I doing this the way you wanted? Is there something I should change about what I'm doing? Getting these issues out of the way early can avoid causing more problems later on. One of our participants with Tetraplegia said, you can say the same thing over three different ways, but if that's not how they learn, you're not going to accomplish anything. If I direct something in a specific way and it's clear they're not grasping it, then I say, how can I do this better? How can I help you help me? Step back and reassess the big picture. It can be very easy to get caught up in the details of day-to-day care, how well that transfer went, what happened with that catheterization, whether the sandwich was made the right way or not, these kinds of things. And it's important to sort of step back and, in a more global sense, talk to each other about how things are going. How did the day go for you? What worked well and what could have gone better? Was it a good day or a bad day? What what could we do differently? And taking time to step back and think about these things can help identify challenges and solutions that you might not identify if you're just focused on little tiny pieces of the day. One of our caregivers said, I think first is respect the person with SCI. You know, being there, listening to the person with SCI, and asking for feedback from them. So how was the day? What did you think needed to be different? (laughs) Treat one another as you would like to be treated. This one goes for all kinds of relationships, caregiving relationships, being among them as well. Say please and thank you. It makes a big difference. Use a kind tone of voice and respectful language. Yelling might be appropriate if it's an emergency, but it's not appropriate all the time. Be patient. Acknowledge that everyone has good days and bad days. You know, some of our participants talked about having issues with pain that sometimes are worse on some days or another, and letting their caregiver know I'm having a lot of pain today, so I'm not going to be myself, and I thank you for just bearing with me today. Treating each other well builds and maintains a foundation of trust that will be helpful when you encounter some issue or challenge that you have to work through together. One of our participants with tetraplegia said, I think you have to treat the person that you're dealing with nicely. That's what it comes down to. Because if you treat someone like a jerk, it's going to come boomeranging right back at you. Either they're going to give poor care or going to leave on you. Another participant said, I have an aide right now. We've been together for a while. There's little idiosyncrasies that come up once in a while that drive me crazy, and I'm sure I do the same thing to her. But you have to be flexible, no matter who it is. And finally, pick your battles. So even with the best of intentions and the best possible instructions, things don't always go the way you intended them to go. And too much criticism may damage the relationship or cause a caregiver to leave. So decide what you can live with and what you can't. And that really does go both ways. Focus your feedback to each other on what's most important. One of our participants said, I try my best not to complain as much, because when you do complain, then they take it a little more seriously. So don't complain so much, but when it's serious, complain, when need be. Try to bite your tongue a little bit, but at the end of the day, I try to do what I can to make myself happy and go on with my life. Now, there are a few limitations that I request you keep in mind as we think about these suggestions and how we might apply them. One of them I alluded to earlier, which is that our question guide wasn't directly focused on fostering positive relationships between people with SCI and their caregivers. And there's greater depth of suggestions that might have come if we had specifically asked the questions in that way. It was something that emerged kind of uh, in the process of learning about directing care and caregiving. But it wasn't the primary focus. I also noted earlier that our participants tended to focus on their interactions with paid caregivers in the discussion, so there is a bit more of a slant towards suggestions that focus on the the professional or the working relationship than more interpersonal relationships that might be encountered if, say, a spouse is the one providing that care. So there's more suggestions, I'm sure, that would emerge for those kinds of relationships, but many of the things discussed here have broad applicability. Also, the suggestions offered here are based on themes that were identified by the primary investigator, which was me, and then those are presented to co-investigators who provided feedback. We didn't do a complete independent coding of the transcripts to come up with that list of themes. So there is the possibility that some bias may be introduced through that process. But we had lots of discussions and lots of consensus building designed to try to mitigate that methodological limitation. Also, it should be noted that civilians have a greater representation in the sample, and this particular analysis didn't really delve into differences between what veterans said or civilians said, if there were any differences, but that's something that can be examined in the future. So the key ideas that emerged from what we heard from our participants was that strong interpersonal skills are key to successful direction of care and caregiving, that working successfully with caregivers requires mutual respect and a very delicate balance of assertiveness and flexibility. And much is learned through trial and error. So as we think about how to apply these ideas to practice, I think one of the key ideas is that the soft skills of being able to communicate, to provide appropriate feedback, to uh, deal with conflict, these are skills perhaps as important as other skills such as being able to do that transfer or to know how the catheterization should be done or how the skin care should be performed. These skills are overlaid on everything else that happens and so there is I think a need for us to do more training about these kinds of skills and to give recognition to them in the training process. That said, The docket is quite full, especially inpatient rehabilitation, for all the things that people with spinal cord injury and their families need to learn. So I think we have to think creatively about this learning and not just focus it in the inpatient period, but consider it as something that's going to continue over time, especially as people gain experience living in their post-SCI body, knowing what their needs are and what works best for them. So some ways to integrate these suggestions into current practice include Integrating some materials related to communication or conflict resolution in among the other materials that are focused on how the bowel works, how the bladder works, autonomic dysreflexia, and so forth. So giving some attention to those areas, as well as the more medical or physiological or functional aspects of dealing with SCI. Also during training, when, for example, a caregiver is practicing a transfer, Give feedback, not only on the mechanics of the transfer. Were the body mechanics good? Was everything set up correctly? But consider what the communication dynamics were. If you noticed, as a clinician, that uh, someone was uncertain and they kind of went for it anyway, then maybe suggest you know, pause. If you're not sure, take a moment, ask a question, talk to each other, and see how that goes. Peer mentoring is also a potentially important tool that can help in dealing with these issues. So we found that many of our participants, after the focus group discussion, said that they really enjoyed hearing from other people with SCI and from other caregivers and how they dealt with these kinds of issues, and said that speaking to others who are living this experience is often helpful in figuring out how to deal with the challenges that arise. And also, there may be opportunities for us to look to other non-healthcare sectors for help in training some of these soft skills. So many of us as part of our organizations have access to workshops on how to be a good team player and how to communicate well, conflict resolution, and so forth. So these are uh, talks that might have quite a lot of relevance in a rehab context, and there may be opportunities for us to partner with some of those Uh, training groups and classes to, to give them in a rehab context and enable some of those lessons to be taught and applied in this way. Now, I've gathered at the end of this presentation a number of different resources. I will not go through them all now, so fear not. But they are derived from a lot of different sources. So there are different guides that have been created. One of them is created by the Paralyzed Veterans of America. talks about managing personal care assistance. There's also a guide created by the Research and Training Center on Independent Living that provides information of a, a similar nature. And it's designed for both consumers and for the staff of independent living centers. There are uh, other guides created by Shepherd Center about hiring and managing and training personal care assistants. The University of Alabama at Birmingham's created a a wonderful guide that's focused on preventing medical complications in a caregiver sense. So it's a guide for assistance of people with spinal cord injury. Then there's some organizations as well that have a lot of uh, resources to offer. These tend to be focused more on family caregivers than paid caregivers, but there are some things that can be helpful across the board that I wanted to highlight. So this includes the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, the Family Caregiver Alliance, and the National Alliance for Caregiving. And all those are in your packets. And you can explore the different resources that they have to offer. Um, Interestingly, some of them have sort of diagnostic-specific pages with information for different groups. SCI sometimes is not among those special groups. So I think there's opportunities for us as the rehab community to partner with these organizations and help them create more materials that work well for people with SCI in particular, given that that's a, a relatively small population compared to individuals with dementia or other conditions. So I'm so thankful to all of you this morning for your attention.
0: To listen to the conference podcast, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast.
1: Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet
0: with us on Twitter.